How do we go about feeding a planet that's hotter and more crowded than ever? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. The connection between global warming and the dinner table isn't always obvious when we go to the grocery store. But our choices about how we put food on our plates and what we do with the waste contribute as much as one-third of total greenhouse gas emissions. How can we continue to feed a growing population without destroying the planet in the process? The food sector is a place where we're seeing real climate solutions, and a lot of environmentalists are starting to realize that farmers who really are both on the front lines of the climate impacts, but also they're on the front lines of the climate solutions. Anna LaPay is author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It. A generation ago, her mother, Frances Moore LaPay, published the revolutionary Diet for a Small Planet. Anna will join us later to examine the climate crisis and solutions within our food system, along with author Mark Kurlansky, who's explored global food history in best-selling books about salt, fish, and milk. First, how is technology changing the food system? A lot of the people working in the ag space are not hands-in-the-dirt people. You know, they're IT folks, they're mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. There's a much broader definition, and that's both exciting and concerning. Amanda Little is a journalism professor at Vanderbilt University who also writes for The New Yorker and Bloomberg about energy, food, and climate. Her most recent book is The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. She's joined by Twilight Greenaway, a contributing editor with Civil Eats, an online source of news about food, health, and environment. They will talk about reinventing the global food system to be more productive and nutritious. I began our conversation, recorded in June of 2019, by asking Amanda about Memphis Meats, a company in Berkeley, California, that she writes about in her book. Memphis Meats is producing what are called cell-based meats, uh, which are meats that are grown um, from cells taken from uh, animals and, but grown outside the animal. And uh, the cells are given sort of a, a, a very comfortable environment in which to grow in a, in a bioreactor, which in, in lay terms is a very sophisticated crockpot, essentially, and um, grow and grow and grow until they form muscle mass and uh, are blended with connective tissues and fats and essentially a meat product that is meat, um, just grown uh, separate from, from the animal. And I tested a uh, cell-based duck breast about nine months ago or so in the Memphis Meat Laboratory. Uh, but that interested me as part of so the, this growing um, you know, industry in alternative meats. Because much of the climate conversation really gets down to meat and protein. A lot of it's animal protein. And this lab meat, you know, is one way to kind of, in theory, reduce the, the environmental and greenhouse gas impacts of factory farms, uh, the intensive impacts of, of industrial production of, of animal protein, right? So uh, there's, but there's a lot of big companies, Tyson inve invested in, uh, in Memphis, Cargill, even Hormel, uh, uh, maker of Spam is looking at this kind of thing. Is this where meat is going away from the pasture to the lab? Yeah, actually, I 
got interested in the story in part because I was writing about Tyson for Bloomberg, and I found that they were investing in Memphis Meats. Cargill Meats had come in, I think, first, and then brought, uh, you know, Tyson came in thereafter. And a number of, you know, sort of more predictable investors had also come in, Bill Gates and um, Richard Branson and so on. Um, but I, I thought this was fascinating that the conventional meats industry was investing in sort of disruptive technologies and asked Tom Hayes, who was then the CEO, of Tyson, why are you going into cultured meats or, you know, aka cell-based meats or lab meats? Um, and they said, well, or he said, if you can grow the meat without the animal, why wouldn't we do that? There's a huge, you know, resource advantage for us and obviously ethical advantages to, to growing the meat without the animal. And he said, we see disruption in the auto industry. We see disruption in tobacco. You know, disruption is coming in the meats industry. That fascinated me that this was, you know, so, something that conventional meats were investing in. Now, granted, it's a small, you know, fraction of what they're investing in conventional production methods, but the con- conversation is starting. A lot of that is driven by the ability to lock up intellectual property, which businesses like, investors like to kind of put a moat around their investments so new invests, new competitors can't come in. Twilight Greenaway, does this idea of, of lab meat or industrial, uh, does that uh, fascinate or horrify you? A little bit of both, I think, like a lot of Americans. Um, I recently was thinking about this issue, actually, when the, the announcement was made, uh, Tyson decided to do an end run. It looked like they were going to be, you know, really, for the most part, putting their money into existing companies, and then they kind of decided to put their own products out. Uh, At the time, I was thinking about a conversation that had happened years ago about this idea of an organic Twinkie, and um, I don't know if any of you remember that. Organic Twinkie. Yeah, so there was a discussion of, you know, now that organic is, is having this groundswell what will it mean when there is organic junk food? Basically, there will be the benefit on the one end. There'll be the, you know, there's a lot to say about changing practices on the land and what organic means in terms of pesticides and other environmental benefits. But on the other hand, you'll still end up with a Twinkie. And I think that uh, that discussion felt very apt when I started to think about cell-based meat because, well, cell-based meat, plant-based meat, and the investment and the huge kind of groundswell around seeing it as uh, the solution. And I think there are obvious benefits. There are also some downsides. And so for me, it feels very similar. Uh, One of the main questions I have is about the ingredients that go into that, particularly the plant-based meat. Uh, Will it be, how will it be raised? Will it be regenerative on a large scale? Uh, They just, I think it was, was it impossible that just came out declaring their pride at uh, using American genetically modified soy. So I do think that it's very complicated, and I'm curious to see how it plays out. So, Amanda, yeah, your response. I mean, you know, GMOs, they're, they're, a lot of pe- people on the left are, are rabidly against them. Other people say, well, you know, is there cell editing? Or is there's all sorts of techniques here. But really what we're talking about is kind of the role of innovation and technology and food, whether food ought to kind of be like our grandparents or, or a product that's it's engineered and designed uh, to, to address the hunger and climate challenges we're facing. Yeah, and I'm interested to get to the GMO topic. Um, 
you know, it, with the with the lab based or the cell based meats, it's interesting because some of the claims. I mean, the potential is so exciting that there actually could be health benefits. Memphis is there are many of these cell based companies that are emerging, and so Memphis is only one of them. But the um, Uma Valetti, the founder ha, who is a cardiologist by training, was interested in potentially you know the human health benefits of bringing in healthy fats. Uh, also addressing some of the contamination problems in meats, um, that this would actually do more than sort of what an organic Twinkie would do. It, it could create a lot more safety um, for the eaters of the meats and certainly offset, of course, the impacts on the animals themselves. So in theory, it's really exciting. Certainly, what is the you know medium in which the cells are grown? What is the cost of this from an energy standpoint? How great are the you know potential climate benefits? A lot of that you know we don't yet know, but um, in concept, it's exciting. And this is what's so interesting about a lot of these areas of food tech or what they call climate smart agriculture that are emerging. You know, the benefits seem to outweigh the risks by a long shot, but it's still, we're so early in the phases of a lot of these technologies that um, it's really hard to say for sure, you know, this is a slam dunk. And I think it depends a lot on who we're talking about as benefiting, right? I mean, I think there are very clear benefits. I'm really interested in who's producing the food and how. And I think a lot about rural communities. I think a lot about small and medium-scale producers. And I feel like um, that I would like to see that piece of the conversation integrated into the discussion around cellular meat more than it has been. One of the people that got me interested in this was not just Tom Hayes, the Tyson CEO, um, but uh, a farmer who produces meats and on a you know small farm he uses ro- you know managed grazing rotational grazing and and he basically said the challenge is that what i produce on a small scale is not affordable for my neighbors so who am i to begrudge some of these you know sustainable approaches that can produce cheap meat um sustainably you know with with better human health and environmental impacts um if we can't all necessarily go to craft meats what is the solution for a middle and low income meat eater? And so was his interest in, you know, in this as a potential solution for sort of the mass produced meats, not necessarily as an alternative to craft meats, but a, mm-hmm. a, an all, you know, an, a, yeah, a I think that's, that's my prediction is that ultimately this is going to be what's in our fast food. I think there will always be a grass-fed steak available to yeah. the elites. And that's what I think the folks who are in this area are saying, too. I mean, they don't see this you know, completely offsetting. I think, actually, Pat Brown at, of Impossible Foods has said there will be no animal-derived meats by 2035. or some, He's made some pretty dramatic claims that... Um, that's, I don't, his, that's his wish. That's yeah. right. <laughs> I don't know that that is shared by mm-hmm. everyone in the alternative meats industry, but it is pretty extraordinary how far things have come. I mean, to see the Impossible Food product now adopted in Burger Kings and White Castles and Shake Shacks and so on, when three, four years ago people were saying... Will mainstream consumers go for the veggie burger that bleeds with synthetic animal blood? This seems so far-fetched. 
the fact that we're seeing these ideas that had seemed far-fetched get embraced and adopted pretty rapidly is, is surprising to me. Um, again, exactly what the benefits are and how these industries are managed is another question. But Amanda Little, you mentioned uh, you know, kind of the small, uh, you know, I- iconic um, American rancher. Um, if meat is produced in a laboratory owned by a large corporation that is serving institutional shareholders, doesn't that just wipe out the you know, small-scale cattle rancher? You know, no, Consolidate so. power and economic power in the industry? I don't think so. I think, as Twilight was saying, they're different products. And so what... But, but, but if this is a aimed toward the, the mass market fast food, and yes, the people on the coast can have their grass-fed beef if they continue to eat meat, which is questionable in a hot world, but um, doesn't that, isn't that just going to consolidate power when Cargill can have its own factories? They don't need ranchers when they own the factories producing this meat. Yeah, and I think it's creating a lot of concern for stakeholders in those conventional meat industries. I will say that... A month after I reported on, in Bloomberg on Tyson's decision to get into alternative meats, Tom Hayes, the CEO, uh, resigned. Um, and I'm not saying that it was because of the piece, but I, you know, it's a tough time. Meats, the meat industry has been going through all kinds of price instability related to tariffs and other things. Um, but it's a tough time to be talking about self-disruption in an industry that's um, been sort of a bit volatile. Um, so, yeah, and I think that there's a lot of concern about how it's managed and how, what it means to control the, you know, have ownership over cells that are grown and all this stuff. I mean, it's a, there are many, many unanswered questions and risks and the, you know, uh, the way that the oversight and the way in which, you know, environmental activists and policymakers, you know, shepherd the growth of these industries um, and make sure that we do this in the right way is essential. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, they're big questions. And Twilight Greenaway, do we even know the life cycle analysis of lab meat? Is it really less greenhouse gases to produce, uh, you know, fake meat than real meat? Great question. I haven't seen that yet, and I don't think it's out. I mean, we do have some life life cycle analysis for plant-based meat. There's been a lot of discussion around that lately. There's also been some new life cycle analysis around pasture that's come out in the last few weeks. They're both from the same third-party organization, Qantas, I think it's called. Neither are peer-reviewed. So um, there's, there's a lot of fast talk at this moment, but I'm glad you brought up ownership because there were a lot of great things about your book. And one of the questions that kept coming up for me was about the role of technology and what that technology ultimately does. Is it going to feed the system that we have, which is very top down, you know, few companies own the bulk of it, you know, whether we're talking seeds, whether we're talking pesticides, whether we're talking meat. Mm. And so, so many of these startups, their goal is to sell to these big companies, as you mentioned, uh, with Blue River, for instance. But I think it's, it's fairly common that that's the business model. So are they feeding into the system that is extremely top-down, or, or will there be technology that comes along? And I do think there probably is some now, but will there be some that really can feed into a more democratic food system that allows for different types of ownership, less concentrated ownership. And that's my big question. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about our diets. Coming up, can cutting edge technologies and traditional agriculture create a climate smart food system? We need the skill. We need the sort of good guys and bad guys to collaborate, right? Maybe this is a way of bringing more intelligent practices to industrial ag. 
That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. You're listening to Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about feeding a hot and crowded planet with Amanda Little, professor of journalism at Vanderbilt University and author of the book The Fate of Food, and Twilight Greenaway, contributing editor with Civil Eats. I asked Amanda to follow up on what Twilight had mentioned about Blue River Technology. Blue River Technologies is a company based in Sunnyvale, uh, California, and it's a block from Yahoo. Um, it's a AI robotic company that has developed a way of deploying herbicide with sniper-like precision so that this sort of system of cameras attached to the back of a tractor can identify and distinguish between crops and weeds when the weeds are, are, are very young, can um, deploy a concentrated fertilizer or herbicide, kill the weed, protect the crop, keep the chemicals off the crop um, as an alternative to broadcast spraying, which we've seen with Roundup Ready and so on, there's huge amounts of herbicides that are um, saturating crops and creating all kinds of um, concern about the public health impacts of those um, chemicals. It's a really exciting um, technology in part because this maiden voyage of the the early tests of these um, robots, they've seen 90% reduction in herbicide applications on the fields in which they're used. Um, They also hope to apply this to fungicides, insecticides, and eventually fertilizers. And what it means is plant-by-plant farming rather than field-by-field farming. So potentially bringing in, um, you know, intercropping and more diversity into fields when the intelligent machines can manage the, you know, the plants individually, you can move, potentially move beyond monocropping. So all this is great. It's, it's elevating the uh, principles of, of sustainable farming and bringing them into you know, large-scale food production. Um, it would all be great. Uh, I think it was last September, Blue River, I think three or four years into its existence, um, was sold to John Deere for 305 million. Um, and uh, the CEO, I remember, was in the midst of reporting this story, and I talked to Jorge Harad, who's the CEO, and I said, what? You're selling to John Deere, you know, the, one of the oldest brands in ag. This is, you know, part of this trend that's so concerning to so many of us. Um, and he basically said, we need to scale. We need to get these machines into the field. We need to produce them in a sound and reliable way. This can get, you know, our robots into 10,000 distributors globally, like 
this needs to happen. And the result is, you know, disruption of ag chemicals and the ag chemical industries. Um, so we need the skill. We need the sort of good guys and bad guys to collaborate, right? Um, it doesn't mean that that is disrupting the rise of, um, you know, local food webs and farmers markets and CSAs and um, locally sourced foods. It means maybe this is a way of bringing more intelligent um, practices to industrial ag. So I don't know that they're necessarily at odds with each other, that you know, improving practices in industrial agriculture inherently threatens the diversification that's happening in um, local food webs. But it's, again, really concerning because if you have very expensive, intelligent robots on farms that farmers don't know how to fix, um, that, you know, can break down, that can be hacked. Aren't I mean, allowed to fix. And maybe aren't allowed to fix, right? So, yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 again, this interesting challenge of sort of risk-benefit, risk-benefit, but certainly the potential benefit of bringing intercropping to, you know, large-scale agri- agriculture is I think important enough that for me it was exciting to get inside there, see how it worked, what it could become. Um, again, not it has to be tightly, you know, um, regulated and observed, and that's um, you know a discussion that needs to happen. And you write about uh, sea and spray, another robotic weed killer, and potato, which is thinning lettuce to allow certain uh, lettuces, the stronger lettuce, uh, thrive and survive, uh, and uh, killing the weaker lettuce. Uh, in your uh, chapter called RoboCrop, but uh, Twilight, let's have your take on robots on the farm. Whether that's going to kill monoculture, or is it they going to do something else? Well, I mean, we're moving towards automation in so many ways, culturally, and I do think that it's happening in food, absolutely. I mean, I'm seeing it, we're seeing it, and it's really right there on the horizon. Um, But I mean, it's already the $250,000 John Deere that I rode in a combine a year and a half ago. Um, I got to sit there in an air-conditioned space, and he let the farmer let me drive it just around the corner and into the <laughs> what this giant parking space he'd built in a, a barn. And, you know, he could watch a sitcom while, while he runs through the fields. And it's, um, it's a very different experience, I think, than what most people think of as farming. Um, so I do think there's already been a fair amount of technology, you know, in play. And um, Is that sad? Is that a loss for you? I think it's complicated. I, I mean, I, I'm not... I don't think that I'm as diametrically opposed to mm-hmm. <laughs> Amanda's take as, as it may seem. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, you brought up diversity, and I think rural communities are already emptying out. They've already been emptying out. And technology has played a serious role in that and will continue to. And that has been a big focus of mine recently is trying to figure out, like, what would it take to bring more people back to these places? And when I went to Iowa and spent time with uh, a really wonderful innovator named Sarah Sarah Carlson, who's working with farmers, conventional and organic, all across the Iowa landscape to to bring about diversity, as she put it, just to give people permission to plant other things. Because in this part of the country, as I'm sure you know, corn and soy is it. And there are a lot of farms that are corn on corn on corn. They've even cut out the idea of a two-crop rotation. And so um, spending time with her was very... Uh, enlightening for me as a Bay Area, you know, food world person. And um, she, at one point when we met the first time, she really leaned over and was like, 
this is really about bringing people back. Like, this is my community, you know? I, she talked to me about how her high school had consolidated with uh, another high school when she was younger and how, um, you know, the hospitals in her area had consolidated or shut down, how there is this, this whole world there that's changed for the worse for the most part. And diversity, as she sees it, and I... I was pretty convinced by the end of my time with her, bringing back diversity to crops and bringing animals onto farms and bringing um, cover crops and small grains and essentially shifting the marketplace so that we don't just get corn from one place, oats from, now oats are in Canada. If we could bring oats back to Iowa, for instance, it would be huge because you could get a three crop rotation going. It would actually require a little more labor, which might bring back a second generation of farmers. So I'm interested in solutions like that as much as I am interested in technology. And uh, yeah. And Amanda Little, you write that with 2% of people in America are involved in, you know, producing food from land. There needs to be more, um, you know, is the industrialization and kind of introduction of robots going to bring more people back to producing food or is that going to reduce the number of people producing food? Well, great question. I mean, the definition of farmer is definitely expanding. A lot of the people working in the ag space are not hands in the dirt people. You know, they're IT folks, they're mechanics engineers, electrical engineers, they're, um, you know, there's a much broader uh, definition. And that's both exciting and concerning. It's certainly exciting to a lot of young people that I interviewed who are um, coming into the ag space because they're interested in, you know, um, engineering and drones, sensors, smart farms, all these things that are post-organic um, or, you know, have great potential benefits to human health and the environment, but it's not dirt, you know, hands in the dirt. Um, I think that there's going to be so much demand from all of us who continue to want to um, support local farms, who continue to want to, you know, see diversity in the farmscape that we're not going to all go to this, you know, sci-fi, you know, future of, um, you know, robots farming food. I think that there's a double whammy challenge one is to address and redress all the problems of exist, you know, existing in industrial agriculture, and there are so many. Um, the second challenge is to begin to um, prepare for and maybe even preempt um, a lot of the population and environmental pressures that are coming down the line. So, you know, the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, has predicted that uh, we'll see a 2 to 6% decline in global crop yields every decade going forward because of climate pressures. Um, we also hear from, you know, the UN that we're going to 9.5 billion people by mid-century, right? So that paradox of increasing demand um, and declining supply presents a real problem. Um, some of these solutions can potentially do both, can help redress the existing problems in industrial agriculture, make it smarter and better um, and more nimble, and, and while also sort of beginning to sort of prepare for the, some of these increasing climate pressures. Um, but I don't think that, it, that it's sort of one or the other. It's like, are we going to do, you know, sustainable, local, organic, small-scale agriculture, or are we going to do, is it all going to be robots and, you know, industrial food production. Um, it's it's got to be both. And to present it as sort of one or the other, I think, is misleading. Um, and I think we totally agree on that. 
Amanda Little, professor of journalism at Vanderbilt University and author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. I'm Greg Dalton. Food writer Anna LaPay remembers reading Livestock's Long Shadow, a seminal United Nations report that made the connection between climate change and meat production. At the time, it was about 18% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, which was more than every single train, plane, and automobile at the time. And I remember thinking, why isn't everybody talking about this? Producing the food we eat from seed to plate to landfill makes up a huge part of our carbon footprint. Mark Kurlansky has also explored facets of the global food system in his best-selling books, Cod, Salt, and more recently, Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. Kurlansky calls milk, quote, the most argued over food in human history, which surprised me. It's not surprising if you think about it. I mean, what is milk? It's this bodily fluid that we're supposed to feed to our babies and Nobody knows when this moment was. I would have loved to have been there when, you know, either the mother couldn't produce enough milk or the mother had died and somebody said, oh, look at that goat over there. Maybe we can use that. (laughs) So always tremendous arguments about mother's milk versus animal milk and many other things. The, The thing about milk arguments is that they don't go away because they don't get resolved. We just get more and more of them. We keep adding to them. So there's, you know, there's newer milk arguments and there's really old arguments. I guess the oldest one is whether you should use animals and then after that, which animals you should use, but which hasn't been resolved. And, um, the arguments about uh, raw milk versus pasteurization, which came about in the 19th century, uh, haven't been resolved. And you know, we have newer ones about GMO crops for feed. and um, I've read about donkey milk and camel milk in your book. That, those were new to me. I hadn't heard those before. And we've had people here recently with pea milk. Uh, we can make some joke, bathroom jokes about that. But it's like, you know, milk from peas. So there's lots of milk substitutes out there. Well, milk substitutes aren't, aren't new. You know, the, the Catholic Church, there, were, there was this belief in the Middle Ages that milk was blood. It was a kind of blood, a white blood. And the church uh, did not allow the consumption of blood or red meat on holy days, which were about half the days of the calendar. So that meant that you couldn't use milk on holy days. So what they did is they used almond milk. They used lots of almond milk in the Middle Ages. And if you look at medieval recipes, they'll say, you know, take a cup of milk or almond milk, meaning, you know, depending on which day in the calendar it is. We wanted to talk to an actual dairy farmer as we're talking about milk and cows and, and methane. So uh, we talked with uh, the CEO of the St. Benoit Creamery, where he's talking about some of his company's business decisions. I'm uh, Eric Bartom. I'm the CEO of St. Benoit Creamery. We are a small creamery in uh, Sonoma, California. Our milk is very little processed. It's low pasteurized and it cannot travel much. We are completely non-GMO and organic. So we know the animals are well treated. This is very important to us. The second thing is that we get milk from Jersey cows and Jersey cows like to go on pasture. So they're not cows that like to sit on a farm uh, like Holsteins could be. They are on pasture all year long. Of course, one of the sacrifices is that when you go with this kind of breed, the productivity 
or the amount of milk that's produced by a cow in a day is certainly less than it can be with lazy Holstein. The cost or the price that we pay the farmer for the milk is much more, way more, almost three times uh, the price of a regular Holstein cow. So uh, our products are not cheap. Our products are, I would say, expensive on the markets, but it's also for a clientele that is caring about the environment, caring about the animals and caring about having good food for themselves or for their families. That's the CEO of the St. Benoit Creamery, Eric Batum. Uh, so Anna LePay, there's a lot in there. Uh, poke at Holstein cows. We'll get Mark Karolanski on that. Uh, but the idea that uh, wholesomeness and economic uh, value, uh, environmental concern costs more, is that elitist? Is that true? Well, is it true and is it elitist or different mm-hmm. questions, I think. <laughs> uh, I would say that you know, if you want to talk about elitism, I would think the entire way our current food system is structured is inherently elitist, where the worst paid folks in our economy are in the food sector, you know, where you have an entire concentration of wealth, where some of the best paid CEOs are in the food sector. And at the same time, you have farm workers barely able to feed themselves. You know, that to me is the elitist dynamic of our food system. Uh, To the cost question, you know, does it cost more to Mm -hmm. say support? You know, I I don't know how many of you have had that product. I have. It's quite delicious and it is quite expensive. it, it can certainly cost more to, say, the individual consumer in the marketplace. And uh, part of that is because we are paying uh, the true cost of our food when you're paying more, when you're actually giving more of your dollar to the farmer. Um, but what is exciting to me when we start looking at these sustainability solutions is that actually I like to tell the story that ultimately they're going to cost us a whole lot less because the kinds of practices that sustainable farmers are using on their land don't incur the costs that you and I all incur in our taxpayer dollars when we have to spend uh, money to pay for the pollution that's caused by agriculture or pay for uh, all the other uh, externalities, as economists like to call it, about our current industrial system. So to me, the real story is this way of farming that's going to be more in concert with nature is ultimately going to save us a lot of money, particularly when it comes to uh, how we can harness sustainable food to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help fix the climate. And a lot of people look for that grass-fed, grass-finished. Uh, Mark Kurlansky, grass-feeding is actually cheaper than grain, so why don't more farmers do that. Ranchers. Well, it's like all of these things, you know, they, they come with a catch. Yeah, it is cheap if you have the right kind of climate, you know, Ireland. And, and, enough, you know. and enough grass. <laughs> and, well, because you have the right climate, yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, uh, grass-fed produces less. So there's, there's always, you know, an economic... I, I find having talked to a lot of farmers all over the world, uh, one thing I consistently find is that these farmers are looking for a formula that works. You know, rarely do you find somebody saying, well, you do find people sometimes saying, you know, I want to be organic. I've talked to a lot of people who said they wanted to be organic and they couldn't make it work. But basically, they're, they're looking for a, a formula that works. If you don't do anything, if you just do all the things that you're supposed to do, which have all been devised to try to make milk cheap, 
I mean, cows probably aren't the best milk, but they're the best milkers, you know. And uh, Holsteins have been bred to be the best producing uh, cows, not the, necessarily the best milk, but the most most productive. And 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 not terrible milk necessarily, you know. Um, you know, so, but if you do all that stuff like you're supposed to do, then you're kind of stuck with the milk price, the U.S. government's milk price in this country, or you know, in Australia, it's the supermarkets that determine the milk price. There, somebody's always setting a low milk price, and if you charge more than that price, people won't buy your milk because it's it's more expensive, unless you do something special. So that's why farmers are always looking, well, maybe if I'm organic, maybe if I'm uh, GMO-free. You know? And they'll pay more. <laughs> well, and, well, and, and just to jump in, I mean, I would say that when I've talked to um, farmers around the country and around the world, one of the most interesting, I think, farmers to talk to are farmers who, who have shifted to organic and asking them, well, why? Why did they make mm-hmm. the choice? And one of the, the things that I feel like I've heard more than any other answer to that question is that they made the shift because they had experienced either in their own families or in their own communities that experienced the the health impacts of growing food or raising you know raising crops with pesticides and uh, one of my favorite farmers of all time John Kinsman a dairy farmer in Wisconsin he said uh, he'd been a conventional dairy farmer multiple generations in Wisconsin the moment that everything changed for him is when he woke up in the hospital, and he realized he was there because of the chemicals he was using on his farm, and he totally shifted his production. You're listening to a conversation recorded in 2018 about growing and eating the foods we love. This is Climate One. Coming up, getting farmers and environmentalists to work together. You want to change things, the first thing you have to do is understand farmers and learn how to talk to them, because the way you're talking to them, (laughs) there's going to be any kind of communication. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the climate consequences of food production and possible solutions with Mark Kurlansky, author of Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas, and Anna LaPay, activist and author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It. In her book, Anna makes frequent reference to climate smart agriculture, a term that's been appropriated by some big agribusiness companies. I asked her what's wrong with big food producers getting in on climate smart ag. We're finding that in this decade that we've gone from food being totally off the radar in terms of the climate conversation to being part of the climate conversation is a lot of the companies, the food companies that are now part of the climate conversation in a way they don't want to be, where they realize, actually, we're, we're a key driver here. You're starting to see uh, false solutions being presented by some of these companies saying, well, we can... Uh, you know, One example is um, there's been a lot of conversation about how we need to use our, our soils to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and bring it back into the soils, what's called carbon sequestration. We're starting to see a move by some of the biggest food companies and biggest investors in the world to do what some people are calling land grabs, basically buying up a huge swath of land to do these short-term, big, large-scale carbon sequestration projects that have dubious carbon sequestration benefits but are profiting some of the biggest companies in the world. So you know, I think it's important that we bring our 
critical mind uh, to any kind of silver bullet uh, solution that's coming from the very companies that have gotten us really into this mess. Mark Kurlansky, is big always bad? <laughs> uh, I think big is not necessarily always bad, but, you know, small is usually good. <laughs> you know? Is small efficient? You know, one of the, the classic economics is big uh, helps uh, drive down the cost. I guess I'm thinking of... Well, a- one, thing I, one thing I learned in spending a lot of years in studying fisheries is that efficiency is not always a good thing. It's actually sometimes a thing you want to avoid. We have a cult of efficiency sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of a a scene, a a very memorable scene in Food, Inc., the documentary, where the Walmart guys go to the farm. I'm not sure if Gary Hirschberg is there. from, um, And Walmart banned the growth hormone in milk that, you know, changed that market overnight. And, And probably think that's a good thing. I don't know. But that's an example of a big company. When a big company makes a change, it can have quite a profound impact. Yeah, and and I don't think um, I don't think you should ever have that attitude. You know, I, I think you should always have the attitude that you should try to work with people. I do a lot of um, talk radio interviews, and I get these people who call in environmental people and different causes that they're pushing, and they talk about farmers like they're the enemy. And I tell them, you know, you want to change things. The first thing you have to do is understand farmers and learn how to talk to them. Because the way you're talking to them, <laughs> there's going to be any kind of communication. Yeah. How about that, Anna? There's, you know, we don't you know, talk to people who disagree with us much in this country anymore. And certainly a lot of people, maybe if you go to a farmer's market, you talk to people who produce food. But uh, for a lot of environmentalists, ranchers and farmers are, yeah, the villains. I, I think that story is changing, too, a little bit. And I will just, just, just to correct the historical record on the Walmart and banning mm-hmm. uh, that growth hormone, really what pushed that, that movement away from this artificial growth hormone, RBGH, where, as far as I know, no dairy farmers using it today right. was dairy farmers and consumers together really putting a stand up against you know saying they, they didn't like want. the results yeah. <laughs> but um but on this question about you know this farmers and ranchers and and, and uh, environmentalists and you know can we all be can we all be friends uh what has been encouraging to me again over the past real decade of this of this conversation about climate and food is that we're seeing, I think, new alliances and, and a deepening of understanding of how it's certainly not helpful to pit ourselves as, as, as opponents if we have the shared goal of fixing the climate. And to me, the again, this food sector is a place where we're seeing real climate solutions. And a lot of environmentalists are starting to realize that farmers who really are both on the front lines of the climate impacts... But also, they're on the front lines of the climate solutions. They're the ones who are really the stewards of of our soils, which, again, is one of the biggest carbon sinks on the planet. And that when you bring these ecological practices to the farm, you're seeing a real power for biodiversity to go up. Uh, You're seeing a huge push toward agroforestry, bringing uh, trees onto farms, and has, that has incredible environmental benefits. So to me, I think there's uh, more of an understanding of how there's, there's more ways we can work together. M- m- most farmers and most ranchers and most fishermen do not want to do harm. They do want to earn a living. And if their ways of earning a living are doing harm, you know, you, you have to convince them that there's a better way to do it. They really by and large, are not evil people. 
you know, I, I've, I've seen with um, fish farming, you know, fish uh, salmon farming uh, was started by Norwegians. And they never wanted to be the bad guys. <laughs> you know, they didn't, they didn't foresee that. And so they, they have gotten concerned about how bad their image is and, and, and have recognized, not all of them, but some of them, the Norwegians who started it, actually, um, that they're creating problems and they're doing some things wrong and they're, and they're trying to find solutions and, and they will talk to people. And, they, you know, as a journalist, I can sit down with them and they, and they will say, yes, X, Y, and Z, these things are really bad. We've got to figure out some way to change it. That's the kind of dialogues that have to happen. And another thing, Mark Kurlansky, you've write about uh, the shortage of workers in dairy, and there's those robots coming. There's, yeah, there's no- going to be more and more because, you know, every farmer I talk to can't get, uh, he, he can't get help. I mean, it's a, it's a really hard job, and there's no money in it. And, you know, some young guys starting off, Usually doesn't want to do that unless, you know, the ones that do do it are, come from a five-generation farming family or something. But, and are the robots coming there, too? Robots are going to be more and more in farming, especially dairy. Yeah. Uh, Anna LePay, are food miles overstated, <laughs> exaggerated? There's, you know, Michael Pollan educated a lot of people about food miles. Look where your food comes from. And yet some people think that food miles have been kind of overblown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things I was really curious about. And, and actually, if you look at the, 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 the science around you know, what percentage of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the transport of your food, you know, what percentage of your food that is, it's, it's actually a relatively small percentage. But what I would sort of caution folks to, to do, though, is not say, okay, then we can, you know, get this food from halfway around the world and get this food from, you know, the other halfway around the world, uh, is that local is often proxy, actually, for a whole suite of other benefits of your food. Uh, so, you know, when, when, a, when a Michael Pollan is talking about supporting and buying local food, I'm pretty sure Michael is not meaning, you know, the, if you live near a Twinkie factory, go buy the Twinkie, <laughs> right? He's, he really means support your your region of your regional food shed. He means, you know, go to the farmers that are promoting biodiversity, that are that are keeping your land protected from sprawl, that are, you know, tending to you, your watershed. The kind you don't of think the local want. Twinkies are better? So I don't know. <laughs> I don't live near a Twinkie factory, as far as I know. So no, but you know, I, I um, you had mentioned this book I had done, uh, uh, Food of a Younger Land, which was uh, uh, food writing that was done for the WPA in the 1930s, hmm. and the food was all local. And, you know, one of the results of that that you could see was that in most places, people ate really badly in the wintertime. Uh, if you read this book, you're going to think twice about being a locavore. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a luxury that certain people in Mediterranean climates have. Right. Yes. Right. And, you know, I think to me what is important to, to realize when you, when you bring up this food miles question and start thinking about it is it really starts drilling you down then to this question of, well, then what is the most important thing if you care about the environmental impact of your food or you want to eat a more climate-friendly diet? It's really a question of what are you eating, how is it grown, where was it grown? And uh, because most of the, the percentage of greenhouse gas emissions associated with your food come from that agricultural production slice. It's about 80 to 85%. So that brings us into, you know, what we 
what have the most impact. Why, yeah, what is food? And uh, Anna LePay, you have a, a, a TEDx talk about uh, empathy for both for, for, for workers. And so talk about the collective empathy of food. And... Yeah, so uh, I was talking in that speech, this, this idea of this way that food can actually elicit our innate sense of empathy. Uh, I started thinking about it as I started reflecting on the farmers and farm workers I'd met and started realizing that you know, when I make food choices for myself and uh, my family, you know, I do really think about how does this food choice not just feed my two daughters the, the healthiest food for them, but it really does create the sense of empathy in me where I think about, you know, was there a farm worker mother living in Salinas Valley who had to be exposed to chlorpyrifos, a toxic insecticide, to grow the lettuce that I'm giving my kids for dinner. And realizing that for me, for instance, choosing food that isn't grown with toxic pesticides is an empathetic choice, that it's both both really about my care for myself and really my kids, but really it's about caring for people all across the food chain. And, and how I think food can be this, this act of expression of that collective empathy for the farmer you're never going to meet, the farm worker you're never going to meet, the butterfly and bee you're never going to see buzz by, but you know was saved because you didn't purchase the food that was grown with the neonicotinoid that killed those bees and butterflies. So I think there is a way that it can tap us into, I think, a really beautiful part of human nature, which is our capacity to feel empathy. Can I I just talk a minute about pesticides? Because it's an interesting example. You know, before uh, DDT was developed during World War II, uh, because American troops in the Pacific were getting a lot of malaria. And um, before DDT came along, Basically, what farmers did was what is called biological control, which is you bring in the bug that eats the bug that you want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. And it's a very difficult and complicated thing because you're talking about you know, in, invasive species and bringing in things that weren't supposed to be there. And you know, in nature, there's always, uh, biologists call it the law of unintended consequences. Um, but research on the science just sort of went away when um, DDT came along, and all the research went into coming up with more and more kinds of chemicals to, to, to kill them. And, it, and, and it's an example of how um, corporations uh, took over science and, and really pointed it in, in a wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the figure is about about 1%, uh, may, maybe 2% of all research dollars is going to exploring these biological yeah. control methods, and the rest of it is going to, 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 to this chemical model of agriculture, which right. we're for, seeing for, creates these pesticide treadmills. Was it Dow? Who was it? Better Living with Chemicals? Mm-hmm. Uh, DuPont, maybe. Yes. But, yeah. <laughs> They're now one company, so... Right. <laughs> we're talking about food and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Mark Kurlansky, best-selling author, and Anna LaPay, a food advocate and also best-selling author. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask some quick questions of our guests today. Uh, first section is association. I'll mention a noun, and you mentioned the first thing... Oh, this that... is kind of scary. So the first thing that comes to your mind, Anna LaPay, if I say chocolate. Mm, delicious. Mark Kurlansky, kale. Green was the first thing that came <laughs> to my mind. <laughs> Anna LePay, quinoa. Mm, questions. 
Uh, true or false, Anna LePay, you have met foodies who care more about the temperature of their goat cheese than the homeless people outside their grocery store. Mm, have I met them? I'm not sure. So. You heard about I've them? I've heard about them, yes. Okay. Uh, true or false, Mark Kurlansky, 60% of people in the world are lactose intolerant. That is correct. Last question in our lightning round, true or false for Anna LePay, you secretly dream of watching Three's Company and eating Cheetos. <laughs> oh, is that, that you're, you're quoting me. So I, I guess sometimes I, I, in this TEDx talk, I confessed that as a child, uh, we had to keep our um, television locked in the closet. It would only come out occasionally. And, the, you know, the closest thing I got to junk food in the kitchen was, you know, I think a rice cracker and maybe some honey on top of it. So I said, you know, secretly sometimes I would dream of eating Cheetos and watching Free's Company. All right, let's give them a round for getting through that gauntlet of the <laughs> lightning round here at Clement One. We've been talking about how the food we eat helps heat up our planet and some possible solutions with Anna LePay, author of Diet for a Hot Planet, the climate crisis at the end of your fork and what you can do about it. And Mark Kurlansky, who has written the bestsellers Cod and Salt. His latest book is Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.